Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full time. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Join Hack Adam 5, a two-week Cosmos virtual hackathon to hack on inner blockchain communication and be amongst the winners of a $50,000 prize pool valued in Adam. Visit 5.hackadam.org. Heads up before we begin, everybody, I just wanted to let you know that disclosure, this episode will be about Kraken, and Kraken was a previous sponsor of my shows. Today's guest is David Kanitsky, CEO of Kraken Financial. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks for having me on, Laura. On Wednesday, Kraken announced that it was the first cryptocurrency exchange to win approval to launch a bank. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It's a big day for us yesterday. Yep. What will Kraken Financial, the new subsidiary being launched, be able to do with this status? Yeah, so there's a couple of uh, objectives that Kraken had in, in launching this. Uh, the first one, I would say three. Well, the first one is regulatory. Look, we're going to be in a much better regulatory position here as a bank in a consolidated fashion without having to go state by state in a money transmitter regime or something like that. Um, we're also going to be, as a bank, be able to conduct certain uh, activities that we wouldn't otherwise be able to, such as serving as a good control location for custody. The second reason we're pursuing this is because of infrastructure. The bottom line is the digital asset industry has had challenges getting good banking partners. Now, Kraken is fortunate enough to have very solid third-party banking relationships, but the fact of the matter is it's still very important for us to get direct access to the federal payment system and be able to integrate that seamlessly into our customer products and experiences. Now, the third reason is this is an entirely new product and distribution platform. Again, we can offer products that we wouldn't otherwise be able to as a non-bank and serve customer sets such as institutions that we wouldn't otherwise be able to serve. So for those three reasons, Kraken found this very attractive. And so from the consumer's end or from a crypto user's end, what will the new Kraken Financial mean for them? Like, what will they be able to do that they couldn't do before? Yeah. So for existing customers of Kraken, at first, they won't notice too big of a deal. There'll be just a regulatory update on the back end of, of how we're interacting with the, the different agencies in the U.S. But then we do expect them to see certain quality improvements. Uh, like I mentioned before, we are going to have direct access to the federal payment system and be able to more seamlessly integrate funding and withdrawal mechanisms and payment mechanisms into our products. And so they should see uh, an increase in quality uh, for a customer experience and perhaps a cost benefit as well. And then they'll really see the difference once we start launching new products. 
things like uh, debit cards backed by digital assets, things like staking, things like IRA accounts or other tax-advantaged accounts, things like uh, wealth management and investment product services. The list goes on, uh, and, and they'll see that. Uh, institutional customers will also see a big difference because we'll be able to offer qualified custody and other similar services. And qualified custody would mean like for a hedge fund or something where they're doing that on account of accredited investors. They're That's LPs. correct. That's correct. And then also there's this separate but related notion of serving as a good control location for broker dealers for clearing purposes. And what kind of crypto assets will Kraken Financial be able to hold for its customers? And do you expect to approve those one by one or does it, you know, as I'm sure you're well aware, uh, does it have to stay away from the assets that may be considered securities, which has been a major concern in the industry over the past few years? Yeah, so I think that it will look a little bit similar to how, at first, how Kraken does it today, which is it goes on a, it has a framework uh, and risk assessment uh, process to go through different types of assets that are supported by its services. Um, and as we move to the bank, that would initially stay the same. That said, there's a possibility that we could expand that list because a bank can actually deal in securities and commodities, unlike a money transmitter or something like that. So even to the extent that there is a risk of a particular asset being deemed a security, we're still able to support it as a uh, bank. And so what would you, how would you say that that would combine with this current trend we're seeing in DeFi, where these new tokens get launched very quickly and very, very quickly become uh, huge market cap coins. And we are seeing other exchanges such as Coinbase launch or uh, list some of these quite soon after they're formed. Would we expect something similar from Kraken Financial? I think it's a, we'll have to see how that plays out. Obviously, it's a very new trend and the bank is just forming. I think there's two ways to look at it. One is what's going to be occurring on the Kraken exchange. And obviously that operates globally. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's at the Kraken exchange level or at the Kraken financial level. And then in what jurisdiction? And so obviously there's different laws and, and regulations and, and others, you know, similar digital asset exchanges do the same thing. Some assets are available in some jurisdictions and not. Um, so yeah, we, we would love to be offering, uh, things and assets as they come out as quickly as possible to the extent that they are reasonable and suitable for our customer needs. Obviously customer protection and the safety and soundness of our institution are absolutely paramount, um, in addition to security. And earlier when you referenced the jurisdictional issues, Kraken Financial will be just U.S.-based and serving only U.S. customers, or do you expect it to ever be global? Yeah, to start, it will be U.S.-focused. However, we do expect uh, to be able to expand that in certain ways to other global um, entities. Now, TBD, whether that means we'll directly serve customers in, in foreign jurisdictions or whether it means uh, we'll provide services to institutions or whether it means simply we'll provide services to other Kraken entities in those jurisdictions who will pass them through. Very much TBD, but we would expect to operate internationally. So let's now get into the details around how this occurred. Kraken Financial is headquartered in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and it will be designated a special purpose depository institution or SPDI under the Wyoming Division of Banking's regulation. So what is an SPDI and how does that differ from a regular bank? Yeah, so an SPDI is a bank, but as I think you're hinting at, it's a very specific type of bank. Uh, for one, it, it does not conduct fractional reserve banking or associated lending activities, which means obviously it is going to have uh, 100% of the assets that uh, are deposited on hand 
Um, and, and that is great because it removes some of the insolvency risks of traditional banking uh, institutions. Um, it also enables us to kind of have a carefully tailored pro- approach to regulatory oversight. Um, the reason why FDIC and certain provisions of the Bank Holding Act, company, uh, Bank Holding Company Act, apply to banks is because of this insolvency risk. Because that's removed, uh, we're able to kind of avoid that. Now we're still subject to the regulation of the Wyoming Division of Banking and the Federal Reserve. Uh, however, uh, it's carefully tailored, and it's great because it has very digital asset centric. Uh, features to this. For one, on the digital asset side, it has the concept of bailments taken from property law, whereby uh, you can drop off a digital asset and the relationship between the depositor and the banking institution is spelled out and codified in law. It's not pooled in some uh, behind the scenes pool like US dollars and lent out without customer's knowledge as to the risk profile of that loan portfolio. It does not happen like that. So it works with a bailment and it's harmonized with the underlying commercial code, which is very important. The third factor is that it has a dedicated supervisory program for digital assets, which is tremendous. There is no other regime in the US, certainly not a banking regime that has those features. And for that reason, this was an ideal uh, framework for a digital asset or even a fintech company uh, to operate under. And so I was just so curious about this concept of bailment. I think it's so fascinating and I love that it exists. But then it, it kind of made me wonder, you know, there is this saying, not your keys, not your coins. And we've seen in past blowups of exchanges like Mt. Gox or Quadriga that when funds are stolen or misused, that customers just lose out. So, you know, I'm not saying that anything like that will happen in Kraken Financial. But if so, you know, if there was like a rogue employee or I, I, I don't even know how this would occur, but if funds were stolen, because the customers still legally own those assets, then then how would you deal with that? Yeah. Um, so one, obviously, uh, we don't expect anything like that to happen. Kraken has a tremendous uh, security record. I feel obliged to, uh, to preface my statement with that. But that said, and it's interesting you bring up not your keys, not your coin, because the example of what bailment, a bailment is uses a very similar example. It uses the idea of a valet. When you go to the valet and you drop your keys off, you are giving them control over your vehicle, your property, but you are not giving them ownership and you retain legal ownership uh, over that property. And there's a very clear contract that is interpreted under the, the commercial code and bailment law as to what the relationship between you dropping your keys off and the person who takes control of the keys and operates your car. It is not uh, a some scenario where you just have a perfectible claim or security interest down the line to some pool, portion of a pool of assets. It's that you gave them a particular type of property and your interest is in that property. So while it is still true that, again, it hasn't happened to Kraken, but to others, that if there were some massive security breach and everything were gone, yeah, it doesn't help with that if all of the cars on the lot are burned and destroyed and, and gone, right? Uh, those cars are not salvageable. However, your legal claim and remedy uh, to that is a lot more certain than it would be otherwise. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So... Presumably, they could. It, it would b- give them a legal basis on which to act and uh, somehow get a co- recompensated. If okay, yeah, as opposed to having to go to like a bankruptcy court and get like a, a bankruptcy claim or lien on this giant pool of commingled and unrelated assets because it's a pool on desk chairs that they had in their office in addition to customer deposits. It's totally commingled. Here, your claim mm. is directly only to your property that you deposited. It's much cleaner and clearer. 
Oh, I see. Okay. It's wow. That's fascinating. All right. So in a moment, we're going to discuss how this regulation exists within the wider world of regulations around cryptocurrency. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. How much in fees are you paying for crypto purchases? Now, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee when you buy crypto. Apart from crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping with Crypto.com. Get up to 10% back when you pay with their MCO Visa card. No card? Use the Crypto.com app to buy gift cards for up to 20% back. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Back to my conversation with David Kanetsky. For years, crypto companies have struggled to obtain and keep banking relationships because they're you know, sort of the gatekeepers to the wider world of finance and um, potentially maybe even saw crypto companies as competitors. And um, that was, uh, you know, a key kind of choke off point for a lot of these startups. A lot of them lived and died by their banking relationships. So how will the existence of Kraken Financial change that um, longstanding problem for crypto exchanges for Kraken in particular, as well as for other crypto companies yeah, no, you're you're 100% right that the digital asset industry has struggled with this. Um, and there's yeah, perhaps crosswinds of competitive uh, reasoning behind it. Another one is just the risk appetites and profiles of these, these banking businesses who, who cut off uh, other kind of gray market stuff, whether it means, you know, cannabis industry, whether it's uh, actual, you know, uh, adult films, things like that. Um, so a lot of it is about more like the risk profile and who, what's going to come down the pipe to them and who they're going to have to answer to more so than it is, uh, in my opinion, at least about competitive stuff. Now, Kraken is fortunate to have a, a slate of top tier third party banking providers, but not all companies are in that same position. Um, and even though Kraken is in that position, it's still, in our view, a, a great advantage to have this direct access to the federal payment system and be able to integrate it very seamlessly um, into our product set without having to rely on APIs or other sort of um, intermediary kind of linkage to third-party uh, services. So to start, this will help again because we will be able to seamlessly integrate banking, more seamlessly integrate banking into our existing product set. And then you're correct that down the line, uh, we would look to bank other institutions and corporations. Um, and because we are a digitally asset, digital asset native company, uh, we do feel that we obviously have firsthand knowledge of the types of risks uh, that banks do need to make judgment calls on when they are banking a customer. Uh, and then third point, I would say just more broadly, Kraken's mission has always been to promote the adoption of digital assets in order to enable more individual financial freedom in the world. This is a key tool on that path because it allows us to seamlessly integrate the traditional financial system with the digital asset ecosystem. I know a lot of people say that, but this is the first time that a digitally asset, digital asset native company is going to have access to a banking license and that federal payment system. So we're finally actually going to see what that means. Yeah, yeah. It's very exciting. It's a really big deal, I think. Um, but I was so curious also, because when this news came out, this is sort of one of the latest in a string of different regulations and news articles about these new regulations. Um, 
that are changing uh, in ways that are promising for potential crypto banks or other financial institutions handling crypto. So for instance, the Officer of the Control of the Currency or OCC said that banks could provide services to crypto startups in addition to custodying cryptocurrency. The Conference of State Bank Supervisors or CSBS just said this week that it would introduce a new cryptocurrency compliance regime for money services businesses, such as exchanges, and that that would impose the same rules and standards across 48 states rather than the firms having to go state by state to get licenses, which has been the case for, you know, uh, I, I guess over a decade now. So where does the SPDI fit in with these other regulations? How do they overlap? How are they separate? Yeah, totally. So the OCC um, interpretive guidance that was released, uh, I think it was July 22nd or so, but but in any event, a few weeks back, um, but it was great. Um, I will say um, it's always been my understanding and many people's understanding that banks could conduct these activities. They always could, uh, both state chartered and nationally chartered. It's important to note that state chartered banks have the same powers as, as federally chartered banks. They could always conduct these activities. However, if you're a big banking institution incumbent, it means something in terms of like your risk profile uh, to have the OCC uh, head or acting head uh, have this interpretive letter in hand on paper saying that you can do it. So it's important and matters from that perspective. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, um, this SPDI framework is a bit different than other existing bank frameworks um, in that it is carefully tailored to the needs of a digital asset or fintech company, things like the uh, full reserve nature of it. And as a result, the uh, inapplicability of FDIC or Bank Holding Company Act, the bailments and commercial codes, but most importantly, the supervisory program. Um, so even if you're a bank today and you say, yeah, we want to uh, handle digital assets, you have no idea how your regulators are going to examine you and, and conduct oversight. It's not documented. It's usually documented in a massive manual uh, Wyoming has that. Other uh, regimes do not. I would expect other regimes to borrow very liberally from the Wyoming framework, which is great news. Um, we welcome the competition and moving the industry forward. You're also seeing, as you mentioned, that with the CSBS, there is this kind of like set, state versus federal kind of harmonization or competitive efforts going on. My understanding uh, with the news that you mentioned about the CSBS is it's, it's not uh, harmonizing licensure. It's harmonizing examinations. Uh, so you still would need to have a license in all 50 states. It's just that the examination cycle would be much more streamlined, so they say. Uh, it remains to be seen. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Wait, so so basically then you still have to go state by state to get the licenses, but it's that once you have them, then there's just one regulator for kind of con maintaining that license or yeah, those licenses? Need, that's correct. You still need a license oh. in all the states and well, you just... Uh, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's helpful to be clear. It's helpful. I mean, you, you today, if you have 50 state licenses, you're going to have five exams a year or something like that. If you can get that to one, that's material, but it is true that you'll still need to have all of those licenses in all the states. And furthermore, uh, from a, a money transmission like license, that doesn't give you what a bank does. Uh, you can do a lot more with the bank. But ultimately, I think what's underlying all this is you're seeing the, uh, commingling and the convergence of the digital asset industry, fintech and neobanks, and traditional financial services. There's lots of bundling and unbundling going on, and regulators are having to figure out how to appropriately right-size regulation. And so how would this bank charter affect, from Wyoming, affect how Kraken would be regulated in New York, where obviously the bit license has been in effect and Kraken has actually not operated there due to how onerous the bit license regime is? 
Yeah. So state chartered banks, generally speaking, have recognition and reciprocity uh, into other states. Um, and, and that's true here. Uh, certainly for the lion's share of states, 40 plus, 42, maybe more, um, we expect there to be, uh, on the, uh, because it's a state chartered bank, there to be recognition and reciprocity in other states. Now, there are some outliers there where we do expect to have to conduct uh, extra activities in order to enter those jurisdictions because of the fact that they have uh, very specific verbiage about digital assets in their money transmission laws, or they have something like the bit license or something like that. So New York would be one of the states where we would expect to have to at least jump through some extra hoops in order to enter. But we believe that this, because we have this banking charter, it's going to be much less than if you're coming in there de novo or something like that. Um, so we do anticipate using this to access all 50 states. It just may be uh, some of those kind of holdouts would be uh, in a second or third tranche of rollouts. Kraken is well known for having a somewhat contentious relationship with regulators, sometimes doing things like pushing back on what it would deem as overreach from regulators asking for information. Um, you know, as we mentioned, not serving customers in New York due to the bit license, pulling out of Japan when regulations there became stricter in the wake of the blow up of Mt. Gox. So what made Kraken decide to pursue the application to become an SVDI? Yeah. Um, so I, I would say that Kraken is has never been particularly, in my view, contentious with regulators. It has, though, taken stands, no doubt. Kraken's first and foremost objective is the protection of customers and the safety and soundness of our operation. And you're correct that in the past, to the extent that Kraken felt that our customers were not best served or we could not appropriately serve customers within a particular type of regulation or jurisdiction, we have withdrawn in certain instances, as you're referencing. Um, we have always understood that we would need to be regulated to conduct these financial services activities. We just want strategic and appropriately tailored uh, regulation. Uh, and that's what we've done here. We've spent, uh, even before I joined Kraken, for a year, year and a half, Kraken and others across the ecosystem have been working with uh, the Wyoming legislature, the governor's office, the actual agency of the Division of Banking, and then other regulators at the Fed or other states to create this SPDI regime. Because we do believe that, yes, we understand that you, you have to be regulated, but we think there's better ways to create regulation, not just for regulation's sake, but to address the actual risks that an institution poses and protect the customers that it serves. And that's exactly what we're doing here and why we're so excited about the SPDI. So as you mentioned earlier, Kraken Financial will have to keep 100% reserves. And as we all know, banks famously make money by lending out the money from its depositors. So how will Kraken Financial make money? Yeah. So uh, even though you have 100% reserves, uh, you still are able to earn some yield on U.S. dollar denominated assets via treasuries or other types of, you know, very highly rated securities that all banks invest in that are separate from the type of lending and portfolios that they conduct otherwise. Now, in the interest rate environment we're currently in, um, it, it can be measly. Obviously, if you have a big scale of assets, it can be material, uh, but it's not going to be uh, the windfall uh, moneymaker there for us. Um, obviously, we'll also be conducting uh, traditional you know, wire payment, ACH, transactional payments processing uh, that you would expect some cut on, probably not the like $25 plus dollar, uh, you know, a hit uh, wire payments that you see elsewhere, but some amount. Um, and then percentage fees on, on crypto assets that are safe kept or, or custodied with us. And then all of the new products that I mentioned earlier have revenue streams attached to them. Things like offering debit cards that are backed by digital assets, things like staking, things like IRA accounts, things like, and, and on and on that I mentioned earlier, they all have their revenue streams. So we would expect all of that to happen. And then, of course, customers do conduct trading on the Kraken exchange as well. Um, and so there are fees uh, taken there. 
You recently joined Kraken. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, totally. So I'm an attorney by training, um, in particular securities and corporate law, which is oddly beneficial in a lot of industries. Um, <laughs> but I quickly uh, kind of reformed myself and have been in fintech and financial services for the better part of 15 years. Um, I started that career at a company called Second Market, which is actually the precursor uh, to Digital Currency Group. At Second Market, I uh, ran operations for its pre-IPO private company marketplace, uh, which ultimately spun out and sold to NASDAQ. So I was there then when D- DCG got created uh, and actually set up Grayscale inv- and ran Grayscale Investments. Uh, so I was the head of Grayscale Investments in the Bitcoin Investment Trust that obviously has been uh, very wildly successful. Um, I then joined Fidelity Investments as the uh, first uh, digitally asset dedicated hire uh, to help figure out their strategy in the space. Obviously, that's culminated in some stuff recently. And I'm, while there, I was also a co-portfolio manager of a proprietary crypto fund. Uh, and then uh, for the past two years before joining Kraken, I was at Circle, another digital asset company where I helped restructure and pivot their business to what it is now based around USDC. So then when this opportunity came up, I've been with Kraken five, six months or so. Uh, obviously, I'd known Jesse and Dave and others uh, at the Kraken. And it's always been one of like the companies that I admired most in the space. So when that came up, coupled with this SPDI, uh, I, I, I jumped at the opportunity, uh, needless to say. And will you move or have you moved to Wyoming? I'm here. That's why you see pictures on the floor. Uh, I'm in, I'm in my place in, in Cheyenne, Wyoming and, uh, still putting it together. But yeah, it's, it's great. Um, we are going to have a big footprint here. Uh, we'll be opening up an office for Kraken Financial, obviously hiring people here. Uh, but then also across the, the broader Kraken organization, looking to kind of bring more of our efforts and operations and people, uh, to the state here. Um, and so super excited about it. Uh, made the move from New York and, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a highway that's getting more and more, uh, treads on it as people kind of leave New York um, to, to, to greener pastures here in Wyoming. What should the audience look out for from Kraken Financial over the coming year or two? What do you have to do before your launch? And when do you expect to launch? Yeah, so yesterday, obviously, major milestone, uh, getting the charter in hand from the state banking board. Uh, but it's not a conclusion. It's more of a commencement uh, of next steps to do. Uh, no sleep for the weary here. We've got to <laughs> then approach the, the Fed and get a Fed master account and or uh, domestic correspondent banking relationships. We've got to then uh, make sure that all of our uh, po- programs, policies, procedures are all buttoned up and operationalized to get the green light to launch, which we do expect to do, uh, if not later this year, most likely in Q1 of next year. And so then from there, customers will, existing Kraken customers can expect us to start servicing them uh, out of this SPDI shortly thereafter, and then adding the new types of features, benefits, and products uh, that we discussed earlier over the the following year or two. Great. Well, this has been a very, very interesting and exciting conversation. Congratulations again, and thanks so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Inter-Blockchain Communication will be launching on Cosmos soon. Join Hack Adam 5, the two-week Cosmos virtual hackathon, where you can play with inner blockchain communication before it is launched and be amongst the winners of a $50,000 prize pool valued in Atom. Hack Atom 5, coming soon to a dev post near you this October. Visit 5.hackatom.org. That's F-I-V-E dot H-A-C-K-A-T-O-M dot O-R-G. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, MicroStrategy doubles down on Bitcoin. 
MicroStrategy, the business intelligence firm that made waves in crypto a few weeks ago after it added $250 million worth of Bitcoin to its investment strategy, has now converted an additional $175 million of its cash reserves to Bitcoin. To date, the firm has purchased over 38,000 Bitcoins and has committed the majority of its holdings for what CEO Michael Saylor has said will be the long term. He said, quote, I want something that I could put $425 million into for 100 years. If my successor is staring at this thing, it's still working. Saylor's confidence in Bitcoin is a decisive turn from comments he made in the past, including an infamous tweet from 2013 where he declared Bitcoin's days numbered. Saylor said that he'd taken advantage of the COVID-19 lockdown to go down the rabbit hole. He's come out the other side a true believer as he sees the dollar's inflationary risks only increasing. Now, MicroStrategy has adopted Bitcoin as the alternative to a bank account where inflation might slowly whittle its cash reserves. Saylor has said, quote, we just had the awful realization that we were sitting on top of a $500 million ice cube that's melting. Next headline, Uniswap governance token Uni released. Uniswap has launched its long-awaited governance token dubbed the Uni. One billion tokens have been minted, which will become available over four years, with 15% airdropped to all users prior to September 1st. Anyone who interacted with Uniswap before then received 400 tokens, which immediately became worth more than $1,000. Uni's market cap immediately ballooned to almost $600 million as of press time, with the coin itself trading at $3.50 and volume exceeding $1.6 billion. The community went wild with the news, with pending transactions on the Ethereum network jumping 30% after the token claim began. Coinbase listed the token on Coinbase Pro less than four hours after it was launched, the fastest listing for any coin on Coinbase. Binance also listed it in mere hours. For a while, Uniswap was responsible for 50% of all gas use on the Ethereum network. In a Twitter thread, Fabric Ventures co-founder Max Mersch wrote, quote, With a uni distribution, Uniswap protocol has consolidated an army of missionaries that were early users and are now stakeholders incentivized in the protocol's success. And in his Daily Gway newsletter, Anthony Sassano wrote, quote, This is a clear example of what people are calling the ownership economy. Next headline, Bitcoin Roundup. Key indicators for Bitcoin are bullish. Cryptocurrencies are the best performing assets of the year, according to Pantera CEO Dan Moorhead, who posted a chart on Twitter of the year's best performing assets so far. Although gold is at a 5,000 year high and close to the top of the list, the top five performing assets this year have all been cryptocurrencies, 0x, Ethereum, Augur, Bitcoin, and Maker. Also, in his September newsletter, Moorhead describes how, for periods in which inflation has been running below 2%, the Fed has promised to keep printing money until inflation averages to a 2% target. Moorhead wrote, wow, that's wild, and then notes that Bitcoin appears to be at the beginning of its next large bull market. Next in the roundup, the current measure of Bitcoin's decentralization shows that it continues to rise across variables such as the network hash rate and the number of active addresses was currently near are near 1 million according according to coin metrics research also suggests that bitcoin supply is becoming even more evenly dispersed with more than half of addresses controlling less than $100 worth of bitcoin next headline sushi swaps chef nomi returns funds 
Shortly after we published our interview on Unconfirmed last week with co-founder Zero X Maki, the Sushi Swap saga took another unexpected turn when co-founder Chef Nomi returned the money he had originally cashed out of the developer fund, a surprise move that had generated controversy and criticism. The reproach he received from the community prompted him to return 38,000 ETH to the project's treasury fund. Nomi wrote in a post, I would like to apologize to everyone who I have caused troubles to, he said. I was emotional. I was greedy. I was afraid. I made bad, controversial decisions under pressure, and it hurt everyone. I failed your expectation, and I am sorry. Nomi went on to say that whatever reward he deserves for creating the project should be decided by the community. As you may recall from last week, Nomi transferred control of the admin keys to Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX, who had been one of his harshest critics. Bankman-Fried has since earned praise for ultimately turning control of the project over to the community. The future of SushiSwap remains uncertain, with Bankman-Fried admitting to Decrypt that he is concerned about the damage done to the young Dex's reputation due to Chef Nomi's actions. He said, quote, Given its weird narrative that it crashed almost all the way down and then came back up somewhat, it's still not totally clear which arc is going to win out in the public narrative around it. And now, after the launch of Uni, liquidity on Uniswap is at $850 million, while liquidity on SushiSwap is at $630 million. We will see what future twists and turns this saga takes. Next headline. Unicorn settles with SEC. Unicorn, an esports gaming and gambling company, has agreed to pay $6.1 million to the SEC in a settlement announced this week. The SEC had accused Unicorn of raising $31 million through its Unicorn Gold token sale in violation of securities laws. In a press release, the SEC said that while the firm promised to use the funds to add more features to the platform, it failed to register the sale of the tokens, which the SEC alleges were offered as investment contracts. SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, who has long been an advocate for cryptocurrencies, dissented the resolution pointing out that Unicorn was not accused of committing fraud, but rather a registration violation, and that its punishment will effectively force the company to cease operations due to this registration violation. As she has in the past, she advocated for a three-year safe harbor for token issuers, saying that in Unicorn's case, it would have been able to use the time to identify new uses for the token and expand its user base. Next headline, why Bitcoin Cash may fork into two again. A contentious disagreement within the Bitcoin Cash community threatens to split the network at the time of the upcoming semi-annual upgrade. One side, called Bitcoin ABC, created a funding plan that would redirect 8% of the block reward to an address controlled by Bitcoin ABC for for infrastructure development, but only as long as the miner was using the ABC client. Any block not redirecting funds to the ABC address would be orphaned, meaning it would not be added to the chain by the ABC miners. A new forked node called BCH node instead follows the chain with the most proof of work and does not redirect 8% of the block reward to the ABC wallet. That, of course, means that blocks mined by the BCH node client will be considered invalid by the ABC miners, hence the risk of a split. More than 50% of BCH blocks are currently being mined using the BCHN client, giving the BCHN miners confidence that they will have the chain with the most proof of work. However, the question remains of how the Bitcoin, how the BCH network might continue to fund itself without this infrastructure funding. Bitcoin ABC is essentially responsible for creating Bitcoin Cash and has tried to rely on donations for funding over the past three years with little success. 
The faction that created BCHN is protesting that Bitcoin ABC hasn't proven enough value to the community to warrant what they argue is a tax. Furthermore, they say this infrastructure funding proposal will give too much power to a single developer team. We will see if Bitcoin Cash splinters yet again. Time for fun bits. Crypto normies are coming. Be nice. <laughs> Coindesk's Lee Quinn gives us glimpses of the noobs rushing into farm yam, sushi, uni, etc. For instance, Joe, a math student at a Canadian university, is now one of the top users of a certain DeFi protocol, he claims. He's made hundreds of thousands of dollars yield farming in 2020. Another anonymous yield farmer made 15000 from Yam alone, despite the fact that Yam was over in three days and imploded due to a bug. It is, however, relaunching. But since there are so many new people, a number of crypto stalwarts have taken to educating them. Tony Shang laid out the risks inherent to new users rushing into DeFi in a tweet storm. While he did say, quote, unlike the ICO era, this cohort of prof- profit seekers are becoming quite sophisticated. He cautioned them to not let their FOMO rush them into following influencers. He wrote, quote, it takes time to get sophisticated, but people don't think they can afford to take that time. They're afraid of missing out. People are constantly losing money. Kinshal Shah of Blockchain Capital posted a Twitter thread that summed up all the goings on in DeFi so far this summer, with definitions of terms like liquidity mining and composability. It serves as a great explainer for people just entering the space. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about David and Kraken Financial, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the show on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.